mean, that, that's our primary role as scientists, is to pull back the curtains of ignorance. And we really need to get this story out there. This isn't some hippie-hugger-hoodie type of thing that Cameron was going on about. This is a fundamental necessity in that developing brain to have close physical contact with the carer. Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of my Feel Better, Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chatterjee and I am your host. Now, as a practicing doctor, low energy is one of the commonest complaints that I see in my practice. And for that reason, I've created a free six-part video series to help you increase your energy so that you can get more out of your life. If this sounds of interest to you and you would like to watch these free videos, you can sign up to receive them at drchatterjee.com forward slash energy. Today's guest is one of the world's leading researchers in the field of human touch, Professor Francis McGlone. In today's conversation, we talk about how important human touch is for our physical and emotional well-being and how we have undervalued this as a society. We're told these days that we're living ultra-connected lives, and that may be true in the digital sense, but if we talk about deep, meaningful human connection, in many ways, we're more isolated than ever before. Society is becoming more fragmented as we move away from our communities, our families, and our support networks. Loneliness is on the rise. And for the first time in the evolution of human history, many of us have been exposed to less touch than ever before. My conversation with Francis is a fascinating one, and we discuss how touch is one of the most undervalued senses that simply doesn't get the same amount of attention and airtime as sight, vision, or our sense of smell. I think today's conversation is a really important one. I enjoyed having it, and I hope you enjoy listening. Before we get started, I do need to give a very quick shout out to our sponsors who are essential in order for me to be able to put out weekly podcast episodes like this one. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast. And whilst I prefer that people get all of their nutrition from foods, I recognize that for some of us, it is not always possible. Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. If you're looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So Francis, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Thank you, Rongan. 
It's great to have you here. We're currently in my house. Francis, you've very kindly driven over uh, to record this in my living room, which is fantastic. Um, now, I thought we might start with something that I've seen you quoted as saying before. I've also used this quote in my book on the chapter on touch, which you were very instrumental in helping me write that. Um, and you've said that touch is not just a sentimental human indulgence. It's a biological necessity. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is what our research and others have shown is that the interaction between two species is really only mediated initially by some mechanical sense, yes, which we call touch. The particular aspect of touch that I was meaning in that statement was there's a system of nerve fibres, these are sensory nerve fibres in the skin of all social mammals, which have evolved specifically to respond to that affiliative contact between one animal and another. These aren't the touch nerves that you're instinctively aware of. There's a different class of nerve fibres mediates the fact that someone touches you. That is called the fast touch system, and that fast touch basically lets you know if there's something slipping through your fingers or an animal or a fly landed on your skin. This touch that we're talking about is mediated by a special class of nerve fibres called C-fibres. And C-fibres have a number of specific properties, one of which is their slow conduction. So information that comes along a C-fibre takes a second or two to get into the brain. It therefore can't have any immediate discriminative function. So what's it doing? Why do we have a class of nerve fibres in the skin, touch-sensitive, slowly conducting C-fibres, that respond to gentle stroking touch. And that's really been a passionate interest of mine for over 20 years now when I first read a paper uh, by a Swedish neurophysiologist, Orko Valbo, who'd first discovered these nerve fibres in human skin. Wow. I mean, we first met, Francis, didn't we, um, maybe not even a couple of years back, yeah. um, when I was recording, uh, filming a BBC One documentary series, and we came to your lab in John Moores University. Yeah. I remember being blown away <laughs> by what you were telling me. In fact, what you taught me on that filming session actually immediately impacted the way that I interact with my kids from that very evening, wow. which is, you know, I've got to give you a lot of credit for and th say <laughs> thank you to you for that. And we'll come to that throughout this conversation. Okay. Um, but, you know, right at the start here, when we're talking about touch, okay, I think it's possibly one of the most undervalued senses. I think I undervalued the importance of touch until I'd spoken to you. Yeah. Um, so I think we should talk about why it's so undervalued and why it's so important. But then also, when you talk about touch, there's various different kinds of touch, aren't there? And I think we need to yeah. be very clear what we're talking about. Yes. I mean, the point I was just making is that there are really two types of touch. There's the fast, immediate touch that you experience when something or somebody touches you. And most of the research into what's called somatosensation. So this area of science is called somatosensation. Somato is body and sensation is obvious. Most of somatosensory research has really focused on fast touch and particularly fast touch receptors that are in the digits of the hand. If you like, the hand is seen as our fovea of the visual system. The hand is where we explore the outside world, we manipulate tools, we do fine crafts with the hand. So a fair amount is known about the touch receptors in the skin of the palm of the hand, but right and large, the touch sensitivity is across the whole body. And the rest of the body hasn't really taken that much research interest compared to the 
the digits, and they are complicated enough, by the way. Uh, a lot of virtual reality systems and haptic systems now are trying to understand, you know, how the human hand does its magic in terms of discriminating fine textures, you know, even screwing a bolt onto a nut or, you know. And that's what we think about when, when, when we're talking about touch. We're thinking it about, is, oh, you yeah. know, when I, when I touch my, my cup of tea, like yeah. we've both got a cup of tea here, yeah. um, we know if it's too hot, that's what we're using touch for. But your, your research is suggesting that that's not the only purpose of touch. Well, actually, that's a very important point, actually, that I think also helps to sort of uh, communicate that these, what these two types of touch are. The palm of the hand has skin that's called glabrous skin. Now, there's only really a couple of body parts that have glabrous skin, and that's the palm of the hand and the soles of the feet and, to some extent, the lips. Now, these skin surfaces are all about exploring the outside world. So let's just focus on the palm of skin of the hand. That skin is always looking at understanding things that are outside of you handling an object, picking up a cup of tea, doing some craftwork, all of that touch from the glabrous skin of the hand is really dealing with the outside world. You're interacting with objects. The skin of the rest of the body, now that's me. When touch is delivered to that part of my body, there's a very different response in terms of my appreciation of why that touch has been delivered. And it would normally be in an affiliative or reassuring kind of way. These C-fibers that we're talking about today, these touch-sensitive C-fibers, have never been found in the glabrous skin of the hand. Okay, So the anatomy is telling us something. The wiring of this system must give us a clue as to function. Why are these C-tactile fibers, these fibers that respond to pleasant touch, not present in the hand? Well, that's because we think the hand is dealing with the outside world. The only place we've found these C-tactile afferents is in the hairy skin of the body, i.e. if you stroke your forehead or you give yourself a stroke, that's where the C-tactile fibres are, not in the tool that's delivering that touch, which is your hand, which, which is a really interesting problem, actually, when you self-touch. So, so actually, the, the word touch, in many ways, is almost too simplistic, isn't it? It's because it we're putting it all under one umbrella. Yes, it's, it's an inadequate term for the complexity of touch. Yeah, and that, so there's many different kinds of touch. I like that about the hands. You know, that's what we probably use to to sort of orientate ourselves, see if, you know, I guess if, I don't know, if we if we had no vision for our human, you know, if, yeah. if something had happened, we had no vision, we'd probably use that to, to look yeah. for danger. Absolutely. Blind people become very, very adept at using the, their palm and skin of the hand to explore the world around. The classic, of course, is Braille. You know, the, the blind person can read Braille quicker than a visual person can read text. These people are incredible. Is that true? Absolutely. I worked with a group wow. in Glasgow, a, a girl who was blind from birth, so congenitally blind, uh, and she was trained on Braille. I did a, problem, a, a project on the, on the hand. Well, I, I sort of spoke to this girl and, and watched her actually reading a, a, a Braille little computer she had, and the speed with which she was reading that, that Braille text was phenomenal. So what does that tell us? Okay, so I know we're going on a, off on a slight tangent, but I think it's relevant. So someone who's blind can use these touch receptors on their hands. In the digits, yeah. In the digits, in the fingers, yeah. to read faster than we can 
if we could actually see and, and read. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that's the, staggering. The, well, again, that's an indication of how important these discriminative touch receptors are in the digits. You know, a pianist, a violinist, you know, a craftsman. The exquisite complexity of these, they're called low-threshold mechanoreceptors. So these little microphones, if you like to look at them that way, in the digits, are basically encoding all of those physical properties of touching something. And with Braille, these raised dots have to be detected by some array of sensors. And these array of sensors are in the digit tips. And we know a reasonable amount about how they encode the spatial information that you get when, you're, when uh, a blind person is reading Braille. Now, of course, that system has to be fast. Now, that speed of transmission to the central nervous system is dependent upon a fatty sheath around these nerve fibers called myelin. And what myelin does, it's a, it's a biophysical trick, but basically allows electrical information to travel to the brain in milliseconds. And of course, that's why a Braille uh, reader can actually read very quickly, is that the speed of transmission of those nerve impulses into the central nervous system is faster than a Formula One racing car. You know, it's two or three hundred wow. kilometers per second. So when someone touches you, a myelinated fast nerve lets you know instantaneously that somebody has touched you. Arcing back to these sea tactile fibers, they don't have that property. Yeah, they, The information that comes in along a sea fiber is only going to get into the nervous system in about a meter per second. So, so that's a lot slower. Oh, it could take a second or two for that information to get into your brain. The important point is, of course, again, getting back to the anatomy, is why is there a slow system there in the first place? What possible function can it have? Remember, we haven't found it in the glabrous skin of the hand. We only find it in the hairy skin of the body. Well, that's where you're stroked. That's where you're caressed. That's where you're hugged. That's where this nerve fiber is. And that was the beginning of our insight into the fact that this sea tactile affront is playing a fundamental role in nurture and bonding and affiliative touch. And it's present in every social mammal that we've so far looked wow. at. So, so we've got, broadly speaking, two kinds of touch fibre. One, one is very fast. That tells us when we're being touched. That's the one we were talking about with if blind people are reading Braille very quickly, that's yeah. the one that they're using. But the bulk of your research has been on the slower nerve network of touch, yep. which is the C-tactile afferents, um, or, I mean, for the purpose of this podcast, I guess we can call them CT afferents, maybe, just to... Or, or CTs. Yeah. CTs. Okay, yeah. so these are the slower touch yeah. fibers yeah. that don't really tell us necessarily where things are anatomically around us, no. but what are they doing then? What What is this slow um, network of touch fibers doing? Why is it there? Well, that's one of that. That's been really the main focus of my research and my colleagues in Sweden for the last odd twenty odd years, is functionally characterising what are these nerve fibres for. Now, one way in neuroscience that we always try and you know, establish the functional properties of the brain is looking at ablation or stimulation. Uh, we learned a lot about the brain after after the First and Second World War with with, with uh, soldiers coming back with brain injuries. And when the brain is injured, you then begin to see, well, what did that part of the brain contribute to? And you begin to understand how bits of the brain are actually involved in various aspects of emotion and behavior. And there's been some classic examples of how we've understood how critical the various parts of the brain are uh, in terms of our function. The classic one is Phineas Gage, this railway worker in the late 19th century uh, who, who basically drove a spike through his forehead while he was tamping dynamite down when they were building a railway in Cavendish um, in Vermont. 
Uh, and this spike was a meter long. It went through the base of his skull, the uh, base of his face, out through the top of his skull, and it removed the last part of his frontal lobes. At that stage, nobody had really known where the seat of emotional control was, but this God-fearing Christian who was a pillar of society in Cavendish turned into an absolute sort of, not deranged monster, but he, he, was, he, was an alcohol, he, would, he would drink a lot, he would cuss a lot. He basically changed his personality. Uh, and the, the link here is that the prefrontal cortex was damaged by this particular this accident that changed his personality. And that gave us an insight into how uh, the frontal lobes are so important in regulating and controlling behavior. Now, in a similar route, looking at ablation, i.e. damage to the nervous system, we've worked with a couple of very rare patients who've lost all of their fast-touch nerves, okay? Uh, one of these patients lives in the United Kingdom. But these, these fast nerves... Uh, just to be clear, these are the ones which are on our digits, on our hands. These are the ones that are not, yeah, but they're, they're everywhere, by the way. Although although the, the densest population of the fast nerve fibre uh, low threshold mechanoreceptors are in the are in the fingers, they're all over okay, the body. You get them everywhere. Because, you know, you'd, you'd feel somebody touching you on the back immediately, so there's fast nerve fibres there, but the densest populations are in the digits and the lips, by so the way. So you had a patient where this... Um, they didn't have these fast nerve fibers. Yeah, these patients suffered a condition called a neuronopathy, and the neuronopathy basically damaged below the neck all of the fast nerve fibers. Now, these fast nerve fibers don't just subserve touch on the body; they're found in the muscles as well. So they and the joints. So they they feed this this um, aspect of touch called proprioception. So if you close your eyes and move your arm around, you know exactly where your arm is in space, again, because there are touch receptors in the muscles and the joints, again, mediated by fast-conducting myelinated nerve fibers that let you know where your body is. Now, Ian Waterman, who is the patient that we work with, and he doesn't mind his name being mentioned because he's been the, the subject of a couple of books by a colleague of mine, uh, Jonathan Cole, a clinical neurophysiologist, Jonathan has no sense of touch below the neck. So if you touch Jonathan any, sorry, if you touch Ian anywhere on his body, he doesn't feel a thing. Um, wow. And these patients, there are very few of them, but, but they generally cannot move either because they have no idea where their body is in space because they have no sense. If of they were itself. to pick up a pan in the kitchen. They have no idea they've picked it up. So, so. Can they do it? Would they do it by simply looking with their eyes well, yeah. and seeing it? Again, that's where Ian really became an absolutely a very rare patient. Is that Ian, although he had no sense of where his body was, he trained himself to contract the muscles that would be allow him to pick up a cup or even to stand up, without any knowledge that he's done it. He's, he was able, after months and months of what he would call bloody-mindedness, managed to get up and walk without any knowledge that he was actually moving any of the muscles, the postural muscles wow. that enabled him to walk. There's a book that Jonathan wrote, by the way, called Pride and a Daily Marathon, if you're interested, that explains how Ian Waterman took this phenomenal step to overcome the disability. I mean, Francis, can I say that, that it just sounds so incredible? It um, is. I'm just having this awareness of how much we are taking these fast touch nerve fibers for granted Absolutely. every day to walk, yeah. to make ourselves a cup of tea, yeah. to, to, you know, lift something up, take the rubbish out. Yeah. Anything we need. I had no idea that we need these nerve fibers for everything. Absolutely. And, and I think 
there, there is a, there's a necessity, really. I mean, again, I think with Ian Waterman and again with these clinical populations, you really only appreciate a sensory modality once you've lost it. And there are very rare cases of people losing sense well, of that's, touch. If we talk about, you know, senses, the five senses, let's say, yeah. um, I mean, people talk about, you know, would you rather lose your eyesight or your hearing? That's the, that's the conventional yeah. two that you have to choose between. That's right. Or certainly that I've come across and... We don't really think, t- I don't think touch even gets a look in there. Actually, that's a really good point. I've often thought, why am I so passionate about touch? Because and, and t- taste will get a look in there. A taste will, yeah, maybe smell, but, but touch. But touch will be right at the bottom of the five. I know, but I've been getting back to why, why I'm interested in touch. I don't know whether there's, there's a relationship here between uh, when I first, my mother was a, an infant school teacher. And I remember coming home from work one day and she always used to talk about what these kids were doing and what she was doing with them. She, she for some reason, asked this class of children which, of, which sensory modality or which sense would they least like to lose. Firstly, every child said vision or hearing. Yeah. One kid said touch. And when my mum told me that, I was only eight or nine years old, I suppose, I, that must have lodged somewhere yeah. in the back of my brain. What was that kid thinking about? Touch? I mean, I found it quite extraordinary that a, that a child of eight or nine would even recognise that this sense of touch was something that he or she, you know, would, would miss. But it is, you know, it, it, it is something that when you see patients like Ian, you see the disability that's actually mediated or um, caused by this lack of touch, particularly with proprioception and kinesthetic movement, yeah. is that these patients, although their motor systems are absolutely fine, there's no damage to their motor nerves, they cannot move because they have none of these fast uh, myelinated wow. touch nerves. Now, the other reason, well, the, the important thing about this story is, or the other important thing, is that the nerve fibres that are left undamaged in Ian Waterman are C fibers. So these slower touch fibers. Absolutely. Fibers. Now, now, you know, Ian has done us an enormous favor in many ways by the fact that he's here's our guinea pig. He's got no fast touch nerve fibers and all he has are C fibers. Now, the classic C fiber that most neuroscientists and physiologists and doctors know about is the C fiber that encodes damage to the body surface and it's a nociceptor. So for pain, basically. For pain, basically. So these nerve fibers are C-fibers, and they detect damage to the body. So if you break a leg, if you burn yourself, that experience you get of pain is purely because there's a nerve fiber in the skin, a C-fiber, that has basically evolved to protect against injury. Now, again, getting back to our earlier discussion about there being two types of touch, a fast touch and a slow touch, there are also two types of pain a fast pain and a slow pain. And once again, the fast pain is mediated by myelinated nerves. That pain is, as you write in your book, if you pick up a hot uh, pan off the stove, uh, you'll drop it immediately because the fast pain system has protected you by saying, oh, you know, that's far too hot. Now, that pain is a pricking pain. It's not, it doesn't last very long. It's just, oh, ow. If that pan was really hot, you then know that a second or two later, boom, that emotional burning pain is going to is going to come on, and it could be there for another hour or two. That's the distinction. The first pain is dis- is very immediate. It's very transitory. It doesn't have any real emotional baggage to it. It's just a get me out of here signal. The second pain that comes on a couple of seconds later, which we know is because it's a C fiber, gives you all these emotional 
aspects of pain, like a toothache, like when you've burnt yourself or cut yourself deeply. I think that's such a key point. That it you is, know, yeah. the first time I met you, Francis, I remember that point really, you know, making an impact on me. Um, and I think I said to you, I think I talk about this in the book as well. Actually, is that when my daughter was a little bit younger, if she would fall down, she, you know, she, she'd trip up and, you know, she'd be a bit bamboozled and, you know, a bit annoyed. She'd, she'd know something had happened, but she wouldn't be crying straight away. It was about three seconds yeah. later that the crying would kick in. And I remember you saying that this is the emotional quality yeah. to the pain. And, and that's the key, isn't it? The, there's something about just telling you what's happened or telling you, oh, you know, like you as, you, as you just mentioned, picking up a hot, oh, it's too hot, right? You drop it. Okay, your body's been informed that there is a problem. You know, you've you've taken immediate action. But a yep. few seconds later, there's an emotional quality. And that emotional quality you're saying is, is, is sort of taken throughout the body by these C-tactile nerve fibers that you've been studying for, what, 15, 20 years? Absolutely. These C-fibers, a major property of these C-fibers that we see with pain and we see with touch is their emotional regulation they regulate emotional affective states so, so, so the touch is not just uh, i don't mean to labor the point but i think it's i really want to make this clear to people that touch as you know it or as you think you know it may not be the only component of touch you know touch yes tells you what's going on with your skin and what's going on around you but touch has this other quality this emotional quality and I guess on a wider level, that's one of your big concerns, isn't it? That as we're becoming a, a touch-averse society, what implications is this having? Yes, I think really for the first time in, in the history of sort of ev evolution, if you like, is that the interactive tactile experiences that we would naturally be getting, say, 50, sort of 30 years ago, there are less opportunities for affiliative and social touch. There's less physical play. You know, schools are having to sort of sell off their playing fields in order to sort of, you know, to sort of cover their costs. There's less physical activity and more desk-based, IT-based activity where a child is interacting more with a smartphone or, a, or, or, a, or a, an iPad than they are with, with each other. And this, maybe it's early days yet, but I think there's a consequence that's likely to sort of manifest in the fact that that lack of interactive touch you know through physical play is possibly going to manifest itself at some stage later down in, in, through life where you know one is less resilient and we should probably talk about uh, the importance of touch in early life experience in terms of arming the body against stress this c tactile afferent is doing more than just encoding gentle touch it is playing a fundamental role in the way that the social brain is developing. And the social brain is what the brain is. And again, getting back to the ablation argument I mentioned earlier in neuroscience, we, to understand a function, we see what happens when it's not there. A classic one with touch are the Romanian orphanage children that were discovered in the mid-1990s uh, uh, from Ceausescu's failed regime, where there were thousands of uh, babies kept in orphanages. They were fed and watered, but they weren't touched. And all of those children, or the majority of those children, had severe behavioural and psychological problems. Once touch was re-engaged and they were put back into loving, caring families, they normalised to some extent. What's happening here, what is that developing brain basically missed out on a key developmental input, neurodevelopmental input, 
which would have been the nurturing touch that would have naturally occurred between the mother and the infant. And my point here is that if that nerve fibre is not getting stimulated during development, the downstream consequences can be catastrophic throughout the life of that child. All of these children had some cognitive deficits that they will have to bear throughout their lives. So this nerve fibre is playing a far more fundamental role than we had initially uh, um, understood it to be. It's now it's playing a role in the developing and shaping your sense of self. Now this is getting quite tricky now, but your identity depends upon that recognition that you have a you, and that body that you have, we think, is imprinted, if you like, on that developing brain through this gentle touch system of nerves. Yeah, it's 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 on many levels. It's thinking that you know, there's many parents who listen to this podcast, um, and you know, I've I've got two young kids, and you know, when we when we think about bringing up our children, a lot of us we're thinking about you know, we're trying to give them the right foods make sure that they're physically active. Um, But potentially as a society, we're not giving touch the importance that it deserves because what you're saying is that human touch, close, that sort of deep affectionate touch is necessary for the brain to develop optimally. Absolutely. That's profound. Oh, it is profound. And this really is... So what, what implications then, Francis, is it having that, let's say in countries like the United States... Um, where, well, we can say two extremes here. My understanding of Scandinavia is that they very much prioritise the early years. So as a society, yes, they've got relatively high taxes, but they prioritise mums and dads being able to spend time with their children at a young age. That the state supports. The state supports that. So society is saying, this is a priority, we're going to help you. We're probably somewhere in the middle, I'm guessing, here in the UK. We are, yeah. But the US seems to be pretty brutal, actually, in terms of... (laughs) I've heard stories of mums going back to work within two weeks of giving birth. I know. I mean, I I worked with research groups in America uh, many years ago, and 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 it still incenses me that because there's no maternity cover uh, in North America women who don't have all the wherewithal and the means will basically be handing their babies into care at eight to ten weeks. And I'm sorry, that I, I still it beggars belief that any advanced society would countenance that kind of behaviour. And of course, from what we now understand about the role and function of the C-tactile afferents, is that although that infant will get some kind of care in the nursery it's been put into, it is not, I don't think, ever the adequate care that would come from that interaction with, with that baby's mother, particularly during that first two years of life. I think they are absolutely fundamental yeah. to the way that social brain develops. And th- th- this research that y- you've been carrying out, uh, along with a, a few other researchers around the world, Francis, is um, it's got some pretty widespread Im- implications because I suspect, and I don't know this for sure, but I would suspect that as American society was sort of developing and evolving, possibly they didn't know the the importance of touch and affectionate touch, particularly in the early years. So arguably as your research becomes more widespread and people understand this more and more, perhaps you and your team can start to shift 
you know, the, the sort of perception in society of how important touch is? Yes, I mean, that, that's our primary role as scientists is to pull back the curtains of ignorance. And we really need to get this story out there. This isn't some hippie hugger, you know, hugger hoodie type of thing that Cameron was going on about. This is a fundamental necessity in that developing brain to have close physical contact with the carer. And the carer, is, of course, is generally the mother uh, and, you know, to some extent the father. But there is more and more evidence now, particularly for animal research, and there's, there's one example I think that, that, that translates perfectly to humans, is that there's an, an in interesting area of, of genetics now called epigenetics. And epigenetics is the realisation or the recognition that the environment shapes the way certain genes are turned on and turned off. And I think epigenetics, to some way, is replacing the old nurture-nature debate. You know, are you what your genes are, or, or does nurture play more of an, an impact in, in how you develop? Well, the, what epigenetics shows us, and the example I will use is from a researcher called Michael Meany. Uh, and what Meany was able to, to basically, he worked on two different populations of rat mothers. You can identify rat mothers that lick and groom their pups a great deal, and you can identify a population of rat mothers who don't lick and groom their mothers. Uh, uh, that, sorry, do not groom, lick and groom their pups. Now, licking and grooming is touch. Meany hadn't really n initially recognised that, but licking and grooming is touch. If you now look downstream at the pups from a high-licking, grooming mother, and you look at the expression of uh, stress regulatory systems in the brain, those rat pups as adults are, are absolutely capable of withstanding the stresses that would normally come about in, in any animal or human's life. Those pups from a low-licking grooming mother, and you mentioned this in your book, had a red alert stress system. They couldn't cope with, with the, you know, the vagaries of life. They were unable to regulate stressful... Uh, now, that, of course, is the seeding basis of a number of psychological and psychiatric disorders that could be traced back to the fact that early life adversity, particularly through neglect, is having this impact on the expression of, of um, genes that basically regulate stress. This is so important. Yeah, so essentially that rat study, which you're saying has crossover to humans, yep. is saying that basically if you're not touched enough uh, in a loving, affectionate way yep. as an infant, that is going to impact how resilient you are to stress Yep. for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And in fact, if I go back to my ablation argument again, if we look at preterm infants, now preterm infants, you know, we are now able to keep a preterm infant alive from 23, 24 weeks. Infants placed in an incubator, the, the major focus from neonatologists is to, is to keep that uh, infant alive. So everything, all the research and all the interventions are done to manage the gases, surfactants to clear the lungs, basically keep that heart ticking over so that that infant stays alive, which is all well and good. But what has not been recognised, and in the focus of my research now, is that 25% of those preterm infants develop full-blown autism. All of them, to some extent, will have some mild to severe cognitive deficit throughout their lives. And what don't they get when they're in the incubator? They don't get touched. Now, I know a number of institutions now are engaging with the fact that the, the parent 
can sometimes go in and handle these babies, but I don't think as far as I know that it's predicated against an understanding of the neurobiological basis of touch and this C-tactile afferent that's the focus of our podcast uh, today, Rongan, is that we've got some evidence from a study we've done in Italy at a neonatologist unit in Milan where if these preterm infants are gently touched whilst in the incubator, that we get some positive indicators of improvement in that baby's development to the extent that they're generally discharged from the neonatal intensive care unit earlier than those babies that are not touched. So what we're looking to do now is to try and understand or test a hypothesis. If we can somehow put that touch back into the preterm infant's incubator during that two or three months when they're in the incubator, we hypothesize there will be a significant impact on the development of that baby's brain and ultimately its personality. So again, this link yeah. between touch and autism always gets people hysterical. I've had a whole load of sort of negative press from the fact that, you know, that, that this came about actually from psychiatrists in the 1950s that, that the children that had these displayed these signs of autism, uh, the psychiatrists would blame the mother for the way that child was, and then we get this term, the refrigerator mother. Nothing could be further from the truth. If this C-tactile system developmentally either is not operating properly or the baby has a postnatally depressed mother or we've got the Romanian orphanage situation where touch is not delivered during those critical first two years, we begin to see that there's a link now between that lack of early touch and that normally functioning social brain. I mean, it's, it's incredible, Francis. Um, one of the things I really like about your research is that you are trying to uncover all the different mechanisms that are going on in the body with these slower touch C-tactile afferent fibers. And we'll go into where those actually go to in the brain. But for all the science, for all the complexity, which is really important, the actual take-home um, intervention for society, for us as individuals, is we need to touch more. We need to, you yes. know, you know, we need to stroke more. We need to um, not, you know, give touch more priority in our lives. And and it's I love that there's a real complexity in the science, but but potentially the take-home is rather simple. Yeah, absolutely. But what we're fighting against, of course, is the demonization of touch. Now, clearly, there are instances of inappropriate touch. We, the media feed off it in terms of, as we've seen with, with, with Hollywood and what, we, what we've seen with Savile, etc. They build a whole sort of aversion to the fact that every touch now has got some kind of perversity associated with and it. Ju and just to be clear for people listening, we're not condoning any of that at all. <laughs> absolutely not. But the impact that it has on people's sort of belief systems, if you like, is to, is to legislate against it. I mean, I gave a talk at the British Psychological Society a couple of years ago uh, where there are a couple of teachers there uh, were uh, relating the fact that some male teacher helped a, a, an eight, nine-year-old girl out, out of a swimming uh, pool. Uh, she then got... I don't know what the link was, but in any case, the, the police... in. Uh, interviewed this girl and it looked from the when the transcripts were finally released that there was some let's say coercion but in any event this guy went to jail for six months 
uh, he was imprisoned for inappropriate touch. When the transcripts were finally e extracted, it was found that he was completely innocent. Now, what's happened, of course, that gets into the teaching fraternity. We're getting m less male teachers prepared to sort of take the risk of having being accused of inappropriate touching. Yeah. We're seeing it in foster care as well, where uh, couples now are far more uh, wary about taking on board um, what are generally disturbed children um, in, in terms of the the legislation now that is, that is out there is that any form of touch now can be seen as um, problematic, inappropriate. Yeah. In fact, one of these teachers also, a very experienced teacher, related the fact that he... You know, you know, sort of touched a kid in the class. And some of these kids are quite clever. Oh, sir, I'm going to report you for inappropriately touching me. Now, this teacher, because he had a lot of experience, basically just turned around to this kid and told him to just, you know, be, be quiet. He had that confidence that he wasn't going to be sort of, you know, overridden by this child trying to sort of, you know, in a, you know make some in a, inappropriate accusation. But younger teachers may not have that confidence Francis, to deal with it. I wouldn't even say it's just younger teachers. If I even uh, reflect on my own experience as a doctor, I'm sure 10 years, well, you know, yeah, about 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, if I was delivering bad news to a patient, yeah. almost certainly I would have put my hand on their shoulder, you know, on their arm, just to, you know, really try and have a certain warmth and empathy whilst delivering that information. I also have changed my behavior in consultations because of the way touch is now reported in society. I am a little bit nervous about any form of physical contact in case it is misconstrued. And so this is a wider point, isn't it, about what the news does. It's not just touch. It's with, you know, with the 24-hour news cycles that we now live in, when any problem in society is magnified, and that's what we see the tendency is to think that actually it's everywhere, whether it's terrorism, whether it's risk of being attacked on the streets, <laughs> you know, and, and actually a big theme of, of um, my book on stress is how our brain is constantly responding to the information that it's giving, that yeah. it's given. And if we're constantly given information that actually the world's a bad place, yeah. we're also going to react. We're going to think it's a bad place. We're going to start to go into a more stress state because of it. And actually I've, personally notice that actually if i watch less news which i've started to do for the last two or three years good for you i'm happier yeah. i'm calmer no i think actually <laughs> the media maybe inadvertently or advertently create this rather interesting area called perceived norms now perceived norm is is your uh perception of a risk uh, there was an example many years ago where there were a few old people who were being mugged uh and what happened there is that that generally that information got out into the general population and then elderly people en masse became very anxious about the fact that they may also get mugged and that's a perceived norm and the perceived norm is, is an event that doesn't relate to any statistical risk the risk is still absolutely minimal but you get this perception that elderly people are now all at risk of being mugged elderly people get very anxious in in, in your book stress because the media have wound up of the risk of something and what we're seeing now is the same with touch winding up the fact that all forms of touch now are potentially are highly risky and contentious. Therefore, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the safest thing to do, of course, is, is to basically ban touch. I remember you telling me, Francis, um, some, some incredible statistics on humans. Members of basketball teams who use more hands-on interactions with each other 
perform better, ending mm. up higher in their leagues. If a waiter taps you on the shoulder when they give you the bill, you tip more <laughs> just from having that touch. Yeah. Um, and people visiting a library, if they were treated in a tactile way, they reported a much more positive experience than those who weren't touched. I mean, these are human yeah. sort of uh, yeah. reports that we're seeing, whether it's a sports team, whether it's your, you know, how much you tip someone, all these things yeah. show the primal importance of touch and how important touch is and how we are hardwired yes. for millions of years to receive touch. Yep. And again, you know, as a neuroscientist, I'm obsessed with trying to understand where the mechanisms are that explain these behaviours. And of course, our view is that this C-tactile afferent has evolved specifically to provide the reward signals that basically build affiliative relationships between, between human primates. This nerve fiber is playing as fundamental a protective role as the nociceptor. If you think, again, getting back to the ablation argument, there are rare cases of children born with a congenital absence of pain nerves, these C nociceptors. I always use this example, horrendous as it is, of this little girl who had no pain nerves, no C-nociceptors in her body, and she liked the she liked jumping off high tables because she liked the popping noise in her knees when she landed. If you do not have a C-nociceptor, you'll put your hand in boiling water and you won't know about it. Now, everybody instinctively thinks, oh, you know, how important that nerve fiber is in, in terms of its protective role. I'm making the same argument for the C-tactile afferent. If there's an absence of that C-tactile afferent, now whether that's genetically or whether it's epigenetically, and the epigenetic route is the one I'm most focused on, and that's the environment, babies that do not get adequate touch during development, there's a negative consequence on the way that that brain, that social brain is, development, is developed. So these C-fibers evolved... In, in evolutionary time, by the way, the C fibers evolved before the fast nerves. Before the fast nerves. Yep. If, you know, if you're an engineer and, and say you're, you're building an animal, let's say the first thing you put into that into that animal is it is our protection systems. So the nociceptor is important. This link between physical touch in terms of that animal needs to know that it's got conspecific. So these C fibers evolved earlier to basically allow that organism to develop. In, in, you know, being protected uh, so in uh, communities and tribes and, and, and yeah absolutely so, so on one level on an evolution level thinking that why would these slower nerve fibers that feed the emotional brain develop before the fast nerve fibers that will will tell us where danger is and could it be that actually the the most the best way to protect ourselves in the past was to be part of a strong tribe and a community. Could it, was, could yeah. it be that? Well, at, at a very primitive level, um, the protection systems need to be in place before you then get out and explore. Of and when you get out to explore, that's when you need fast systems. You need to catch prey. You need, you need to... Yeah, so I'm going back to multicellular organisms throughout here. Interestingly enough, by the way, uh, geneticists use a little worm called C. elegans. Now, C. elegans is the only animal that we have a complete connectome for. So it's got 302 neurons. Can you explain connectome for people yeah. who may not understand Sorry, yeah. that? Connectome is how those neurons communicate with each other to control behavior. So the connectome, is, there's a massive project in Europe and in America now to try and work out the human connectome, i.e. how all these you know, billions of neurons in our brain connect to each other. The only connectome that we've ever worked out, by the way, for those who think that the human brain connectome project is going to deliver soon, is C. elegans, which is 302 neurons, and that took 12 years. 
Now, out of those 302 neurons, six of them are gentle touch. Now, if you grow C. elegans from an egg in a colony on a Petri dish, that C. elegans will grow to its normal length of three or four millimeters and, and be a healthy little worm. If you take that egg and put it in isolation, that uh, C. elegans hardly grows at all. It grows to half its normal length and its behavior is stunted. The one thing that it doesn't get, of course, in isolation is physical touch. So again, we see now at the very simplest primitive organism that physical contact between one individual and another is playing a fundamental role in development. And again, getting back to preterm infants, we see the consequence of many preterm infants, their growth is stunted. And I'm making the argument again that that is because this C. tactile system is not getting the stimulation it would have got in utero with the amniotic flu uh, um, fluid washing over it, the infant rubbing against the womb wall. All of that tactile information is now being removed when the infant, the preterm infant, is placed in the incubator. So again, we need to, I think, yeah, I may be wrong, but the experiment, like experiment, you know, the opportunity here is to try and find a way to put that gentle massaging touch back in the incubator. Uh, so my university has recently awarded me £25,000 uh, in a Dragon's Den type competition. And the project that I put forward was back in the sack. Uh, the idea being that we want to make sure, try and find a way of putting the preterm infant's incubator environment similar to what it was removed from when it was in the amniotic sac. So back in the sac, there's a sort of a sex, yeah, no, sexy strap line. And what we're trying to do now is develop a mattress that the baby would be placed on in the incubator that basically ripples up and down as if it was getting some kind of, you know, as if it were being stroked or, or wow. the kind of touch that it would have been getting whilst in the womb. Uh, oh, incredible. Absolutely incredible. And uh, is that ongoing at the moment? You, you, well, £25,000 isn't going to get us very far, by the way, because I've been involved in the development of, of medical devices in my past. But it's a start. It will enable us to get some kind of evidence, I hope, that this tactile reintroduction of touch is going to play a fundamental role in that infant's future. Now, if you look at the costs, of, as, as I mentioned earlier, that preterm infants have, are at risk of severe, not severe, well, sometimes severe, but cognitive deficits. And my point here is that that cognitive deficit is basically tr related to the fact that they're not being touched. That's the big if here. Uh, there's 15 million babies a year go into incubators. Neonatologists are getting you know, cleverer and cleverer at keeping preterm infants alive and well. But they're physically alive and well, but there's a person there. yeah, And that person is going to suffer from the evidence that we have from that uh, early removal from the womb. It's, you know, it just strikes me that the your research, Francis, and... Um, you know, the, the societal implications of it are not a million miles away from what a uh, recent guest on my podcast, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, was talking about. I'm not sure if you've oh, come yes, across no, Gabor. I, I, you know, I'm a great fan of his. He's great. I interviewed him maybe four or five episodes ago, and it's probably wow. the most popular podcast episode I've done to date. Um, we've had so many thousands of listeners, I think about 65 or 70,000 so far people wow. listen to that and shared it because... He also makes the case, not directly about touch, but the importance of 
early childhood and um, if as an infant if as a child you are properly loved nurtured cared for the downstream consequences are profound so he talks a lot about addiction whether it's um sugar sex cocaine heroin gambling he thinks the root cause of all of it is the same and it comes down to our childhoods and this whole feeling of you know feeling as though we're enough feeling nurtured so we don't need to seek reward in other places and i know we've spoken before that you feel that actually if you don't get enough touch as a child and your social brain doesn't evolve appropriately you may start to seek reward in other places absolutely i mean what this research really is beginning to show us wrong and is that we have the neurobiological basis that explains many of the psychologist's views of attachment all of this plethora of of, of uh, research out there about how a child uh, that hasn't grown up in, a, in a, an optimum environment and all their behavioural problems. I mean, I've called this nerve fibre in my more wildest moments the Higgs boson of the social brain. This nerve fibre primes the development of, an, of a fully functioning, normal social brain. If it doesn't happen, and this again is the opportunity I'm pursuing with the neonatal intensive care unit, if that touch is not delivered, what are the consequences? Well, the consequences are, as I have mentioned, 25% of those preterm infants develop autism. All or most of them will show some form of cognitive deficit. All of them segue again into the the descriptions you were just talking about in terms of downstream behavioural consequences that can be traced back to early life adversity. The worst thing you can do to a child from our research is not touch it. Yeah? That is the worst thing that can happen. So what we have is a neurobiological basis of the social brain. Now, that's a really big arc, that. Huge. But if you're tracing back all of these downstream consequences to early life interventions, you've got a real focus now on at least testing the hypothesis that if touch is no longer administered to that preterm or that term infant, what will it look like? Well, the very first person, by the way, to sort of bring this word attachment into the lexicon was, was Harry Harlow. In the 1950s, many of you will uh, may be aware of the fact that Harlow removed infant um, monkeys from their mother at birth. They were put in a cage and they were given two surrogate mothers. One was a wire-covered surrogate that had food and the other was a cloth-covered surrogate. Now, where that infant should have been was where the petrol pump was. Now, that developing brain needed fuel, so it should be clinging to the wire surrogate where the food was. What Harlow found is that that monkey would spend 98% of its time clinging to the useless cloth-covered surrogate. Here we see, uh, in a primate, the instinctive reward benefit of soft touch. Now, Harlow knew nothing about these sea tactile affluence, by the way, but he recognised that those monkeys would cling to something that was soft and cuddly rather than something that had a reward value of food. And what most people don't, read about Harlow's work is that you now look at the inf- those infant monkeys when they were adults they were all to some extent behaviorally deranged they were aggressive they were fighting they were basically not well in terms of their That's behavior it really is incredible and again this nerve fiber pops up yeah with this the sea tactile afferent or the consequences of not getting gentle touch can we just go into that sea tactile nerve afferent for a second because we've not yet covered uh, one of the most interesting things for me, which is that um, you you taught me about this nerve fiber, 
and you told me that there's an optimal speed <laughs> yes. for it to be stimulated. Can yeah. you tell me about that? Uh, well, I, just yeah, the, just brief history. This nerve fiber was first discovered in the mammals in, in, in a nerve that innervated the leg of a cat by a Swedish neurophysiologist called Zotterman. It was subsequently found in all mammals, but it was thought to be vestigial or, non, or not, not present in humans until this wonderful neurophysiologist in Sweden developed a technique called microneurography. Now, microneurography is important to the discovery and characterization of these CTs. Microneurography is a technique where you can take a needle as thin as an acu or thinner than an acupuncture needle, you can pop it through the skin into an underlying nerve bundle. Now, that underlying nerve bundle, if you like, is like a big telephone cable with hundreds of different conversations coming down each of these axons. And what Valbo Nordin and his colleagues found when they were recording from a peripheral nerve in the face initially is that they came across a C-fiber using this te technique of myconeurography that did not be, was not activated to a tissue-threatening stimulus in its receptive field in the skin, but this nerve fiber responded only to gentle moving touch across the skin area that this nerve fiber innervated. Um, this was the first observation in humans that we had a C-fiber that responded to gentle touch. And that really, I read that paper in 1995. I was memorized flying out of Washington. <laughs> I did one of those sort of uh, Damascus moments. So I thought, I know exactly what's going on here. Uh, this nerve fiber is playing a fundamental role as the neurobiological substrate for why a, a touch is, is, is pleasant and rewarding. Now, that nerve fiber, over the subsequent 20 years, we've published a number of papers in Nature and Neuron characterizing the nerve fibers' properties. So getting back to that comment you just made, Rongan, is that when we, when we find a C tactile afferent, and they're difficult to record from, uh, we have the only laboratory in the United Kingdom that's capable of recording from the C tactile afferents, by the way, is that when we find one of these nerve fibers, and we developed a robot that stroked across the receptive field of the skin where the nerve fiber innervated. We find this interesting um, characteristic of this nerve fiber. Its discharge activity is related to the stroking velocity uh, of the stimulus that's moving across the skin. And these nerve fibers are tuned to exactly the kind of velocities that if you were asked to, to rate fast, slow, and medium touch, you'll go for a touch around about three to five centimeters per second as being most pleasant. The nerve fiber responds specifically to velocities of stroking that you would instinctively use if you were stroking your baby or your wife or your husband. These nerve fibers are tuned to respond precisely to the kind of touch that we find pleasant. So this is a so, so it's hardwired, isn't it? I mean, it you is hardwired. You, you can measure it and say three to five centimetres per second, yep. but none of us stroke our partner or our children measuring our touch speed. No, no, we don't, but we just do it instinctively. We do it instinctively. Yeah, we gave, we, uh, some of my colleagues in Germany um, just did an experiment where they asked people to basically to just stroke a wooden arm uh, or a tabletop, and their velocities were all over the place. When they were then asked to stroke up their partner, it tuned down specifically to this window of three to five centimeters. It's incredible. Second. And this really actually, Francis, is what changed my behavior because um, I think when we were filming, there was also, you had one of your, you either had a volunteer or a research assistant who um, was being stroked whilst um, the speed, you know, while, while you were measuring yep. how much the sea tactiles were being stimulated. Yep. And 
it was that whole term of stroking because at that same time, my uh, kids, particularly my son, was always asking at nighttime before we went to bed, oh, daddy, can you stroke me? <laughs> and you know what? Sometimes I would, sometimes I, you know, what I, I'm not sure I gave it that significance. I yeah. don't think I quite understood, but literally I came back from that filming day in Liverpool <laughs> and I thought, wow, my son is, is literally craving some deep emotional um, response that he, he's wanting stroking to sort of feed his emotional brain. And since yep. that time, I now stroke my son and my daughter to sleep on most nights when I'm around in a way that I didn't before. And that's directly down to your research. So genuinely huge heartfelt thanks <laughs> to you for that, because I think it's important. And if there's just, you know, that hopefully there's plenty of take homes from this conversation with people who are listening, but um, you know, stroking your children more, hugging them more, I think would be a really good one. Yeah, again, you know, knowledge is power on And I think the more we recognise that this is as important as putting food in their bellies, is, is keeping this tactile system activated. And the, you don't overdo it. I think like everything in nature, you can overdo and sure. underdo. You, you can smother a tile with touch, which may be you know, not as bad, but not as good as, as, as not touching at all. But is that optimal? It's just normal behaviour, basically. Well, it, it, I guess it's what was normal in human history until very recently. Again, I, I think, think that's the key. Yeah, yeah we mentioned earlier that, that, that the world is changing at a rate which is kind of difficult to sort of to, to catch up with, particularly with the tech, technologies which are removing this necessity to touch now well we're touching technology a lot we're, we're touching, touching the, our yeah we're well, touching these screens a lot but not, in fact, I, I know not. i know in the stress solution i actually i think i've quote the statistic i can't remember at the top of my head but it's hundreds of times a day yeah. we're touching our smartphones yeah. uh, and I, I think i make the case that we touch and we know the curvy contours of our smartphones much <laughs> better than we know our partners and, and how much we touch yeah. our partners because i kind of feel it's quite telling, isn't it? We're living in this ultra-connected society. And I know, it's perverse. On a digital sense, we're, yeah. we're more connected than ever before. Absolutely. But, but in terms of deep, meaningful human connection... Yeah, we're not. Have we ever been this isolated? We haven't been. And I think, you know, maybe we're beginning to see... I mean, I'm you know, a university lecturer. We see in the media, as well as I see it firsthand... You know, the number of kids that are having psychological problems, you know, they're, they're, they can't cope with stress basically. Yeah. And that lack of stress, of course, manifests itself with all these anxiety conditions, etc. You know, although it's a difficult one to sort of prove, but does is this the beginnings of a reflection of the fact that these kids did not grow up in the world I grew up in, where we were just out playing every weekend. We were mucking around with our mates. We had a lot more interaction with each other and with the world around us in an exploratory way than you have now with being stuck in front of a tablet and then interacting. I mean, the whole sort of oxymoron of social media, you know, this isn't social at <laughs> all. You know, it, it, it's quite the opposite. But only now is research beginning to try and understand that, you know, what these developments are doing is something that in, you know, the millions of years of evolution of, of you know, of human primates has never happened before. And there is this potential risk that we may be setting fire to something now which could have consequences. As you mentioned earlier, the brain knows what it wants even if your mind doesn't. And if sometimes if a reward is being denied, not in any obvious way, but you're not getting enough of a reward, there's a propensity to seek another replacement. Now that other replacement can be sugar, can be fat, can be drugs. Something yeah. it needs to fill that void. You're not consciously aware of what it is, but you need to fill it with something. 
Now that's something, of course, can be this phenomenal increase in, in, the, in the use of uh, recreational drugs that we see with teenagers and kids these days. It, for, for people listening who have not heard my conversation with uh, Gabor Mate, I highly encourage that you, mm-hmm. you go and listen to that because Gabor talks about how in childhoods, um, you, you cannot get enough of that emotional nourishment by either bad things happening to you or by not enough good things happening. And I think that really fits yeah. with what you're saying. You're not getting enough warm, affectionate touch uh, could be one of those um, one of those things that, that leads to downstream consequences later. Um, Francis, there's, there's so much we could talk about. I'm going to have to start wrapping this up. And okay. uh, I think we'll have to continue this on a further conversation, maybe a few months if you're, if you're right uh, for doing uh, that. Absolutely. Because I know you're doing some interesting research on um, whether children um, and, and adolescents, if they are if they are given a certain kind of touch, can it lower their stress response to exams? All kinds of really interesting stuff that I'd love yeah, to yeah. dive into. But one thing I think we, we must cover is some people may be listening to this thinking, well, you know, I wasn't touched much as a child. Is there anything I can do now? Or some parents might be thinking, um, oh, you know, I'm not sure if I've touched my kids enough, you know, what can I do? So how much of this is reversible? And I mean, do we know much about that yet? Uh, well, again, because the mechanism and importance of this nerve fiber system has not been fully recognized, and, and it still needs an awful lot of sort of publicity. And thank you again, Rongan, for the opportunity to, to voice uh, what this nerve fiber's functional characteristics and its role is. Is it, yes, you've got this wonderful thing in the human brain called plasticity, and that plasticity is a lifesaver in many ways. You can put back things that did not necessarily happen in the early stages of development. And that's certainly the finding with the Romanian orphanage children. When they were placed in loving, caring foster, foster, foster parents, those children's behavior began to stabilize and normalize. Now, there can be some long-term consequences, but all is not lost. I think there is the opportunity to sort of to reprime that system, if you like, at any stage. I mean, there's something recently, again, looking at the other end of this arc, by the way, uh, that I got involved in too late, is the BBC has recently run a massive loneliness project. And the one thing that they didn't bother to really look at was what don't lonely people get. They don't get touched. Loneliness, the, the, there's a statistic now that there's something called the odds ratio, and that's the relationship between... Uh, an event uh, and a consequence. Like the odds of ratio of an early death from smoking uh, is something like 38% or diabetes. The odds ratio of an early death from loneliness is 48%. Yeah, that's incredible. And my point here is that what these people are not looking at generally is that lonely people don't get touched. And that is something else I think we should... Well, Francis, just on that, um, I just want to say another way that your research has affected my behavior is I do care, you know, help to care for my elderly mother who lives nearby. And I'm often around several times a week. And I'll often, you know, change the light bulbs, put the washing on or put the bins out or do the things that I need to do. Yeah, the functional. Yeah, the functional things. And since talking to you, since uh, immersing myself in your research, you kind of spend a lot of time with me, teaching me about it so I could write about it in my book. Um, I have not only changed the behavior with my kids, I've changed the behavior with my mum and almost certainly now when I go around and see her even if it's to do things like throw the bins out you know take the bins out I will go and I'll give her a hug Mm. and you know as you say knowledge is power it's not that we're it's not that we're intentionally not doing these things we probably just don't give them 
the priority, when we're so busy doing the other things that we have to do, we forget about this, some of these fundamental necessities. Absolutely. And we've, we've forgotten to be human in many ways, haven't we? You know, and the instinct is still there, as, as you notice. That gentle touch or cuddle, that makes a long-lasting impact. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just an immediate thing. And I know you've done, you've done a lot more research on this, and, and I think we're going to go into depth on this on, on, a, on another conversation in a no, few months. Right? So guys, please do let us know if you're enjoying this and if you want more about Francis's research in terms of how many different scenarios touch can potentially impact in terms of our stress response and a whole host of other... Uh, parameters. Francis, when I have world-class researchers on my podcast, I always like to ask them, um, since going down this route, since studying these touch nerve fibers, what impact has it had on your own life and your own behavior, if any? It's, it's provided me with an obsession, I'm afraid, is that, you know, is that the time that I need in order to complete this mission is just... You know, I suppose it, it, it's something that I'm just devoted to and dedicated to. We need to get this information out there. And with all research scientists, of course, you know, in order to do research, we need funding to do it. So we have that battle against trying to get enough research And, and I will say, guys, everything uh, Francis and I spoke about on the podcast today, including links to the papers that we, we've talked about, we're going to put it all together for you on the show notes page, which will be drchatterjee.com forward slash touch. So you can go there afterwards if you want to continue your learning experience and read some of Francis's papers, read some uh, articles he's written in the, in the media and the popular press. I think you're really going to enjoy them. So do check out the show notes page afterwards. Francis, I guess I was talking more about... Do you touch people more now than before you started this research, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. You should ask my wife about that one. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I came up, I was brought up in a background where I don't, you know, in the 50s and 60s, I wouldn't cuddle and touch by my mum and dad. So, you know, I don't think there is a sort of a, yeah, I'm not actually that, that fond of it. Rather. Well, that, that, that actually replicates what I see in practice, which is... Um, People who weren't touched that much as children, uh, I have found, and again, I'm not saying this with a, with a scientific background, I'm just saying my, yeah. my experience as a clinician is that some of those people find it tricky as they get older to uh, touch more because they, they yeah. find it slightly uncomfortable. Um, and I, I do, I know in the stress solution, I talk about some strategies that they can use to try and sort of build that in. I put a really nice case study in there of where it really has helped someone, even though they found it hard at first. So yeah, fair enough. Uh, I need therapy. <laughs> God, who doesn't? Um, but just to finish off, I don't know if you feel, I know you're a scientist, uh, you know, working in a lab rather than a clinician seeing patients. But do you have any sort of top tips for people who are listening to this or, or sort of tips for society and how we can actually start making a change to, to, to put touch where it needs to be put? I think, yes, rail against the touch police. Have the confidence to, to, to use your instinctive and instinctual recognition that touch is valuable and meaningful. And just don't be scared. I, th I think, it, you know, we, this risk that everybody that's being touched by somebody is somehow... A molester. We need to tip that balance the other way, and I think people need to demonstrate collectively that they want touch put back where it should be, and that's embedded in normal human behaviour. 
Well, Francis, that's a brilliant way to finish off the podcast. Um, I know you were sort of uh, saying that social media wasn't particularly social. Are you on any social media networks yourself in terms of in, in case people who are listening to this want to contact you, want to sort of interact with you and, and tell them what they think of your research and what they thought of this conversation? Uh, my academic credentials through my email are, are readily findable with any Google. I do have some kind of Facebook presence, but it's not something I'm particularly fond of. Fine. So people can let me know on social media what they thought of this conversation. I'll relay <laughs> that to you. Um, but I will put all links to Francis and his work in the show notes page. Francis, I really appreciate your time today. You are doing such phenomenal work that I think is going to really help humanity, help society make much needed changes. And I want to acknowledge you for that. Thank you. Well, thank you, Rangang, for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better, Live More podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this in-depth look at human touch and are starting to understand how important regular, safe, non-threatening touch is for our overall health and well-being. One thing I really want to emphasize is that this conversation is not about blame in any shape or form. It is simply about trying to raise awareness about one of the most important senses that both individually and as a society, we need to give more attention to. Everything we discussed today, as well as links to more of Professor McGlone's work is available on the show notes page for today's episode, which is drchatterjee.com forward slash touch. Now, I appreciate there may not have been as many take homes in today's conversation as usual, but I really do think it's important for me to showcase cutting edge research on this podcast that may help open our minds to new ideas as well as inspire us to different behaviors. Of course, we did discuss parents like myself stroking and touching our children more, touching friends and family more, and basically not being afraid to use appropriate touch in our everyday lives. As mentioned in my new book, The Stress Solution, there is a whole chapter on the importance of human touch, which Professor Francis McGlone was instrumental in helping me write. In the book, I really try to simplify his research, make it relevant to all of us with various personal anecdotes and case studies. And then I finish off with plenty of take-home strategies to help you increase the amount of human touch you are getting in your own life. You can pick up a copy of The Stress Solution in all bookshops and online, as well as the audiobook, which I am narrating. All international book links for The Stress Solution are available at drchatterjee.com forward slash book. If you do enjoy my weekly podcasts, one of the best ways that you can support them is by leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to the podcast on. These reviews really do make a difference. So if you have two minutes, I would really appreciate you taking the time to do one. You can also help me spread the word by taking a screenshot right now and sharing with your friends and family on your social media channels. Or you can do it the good old-fashioned way and simply tell your friends about the show. Your support is very much appreciated. That's it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure you have pressed subscribe. And I'll be back next week with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time. Thank you.